Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Week number 55, our chronological journey through the Gospels. We began this at the beginning of last year where I've been trying to uh, put the four Gospels and kind of make them sync up, not reading every verse of Scripture, but we are going to stick for a few more weeks in the Gospel of John because this is an area where Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not make any commentary about. They don't give us any bit of this story. It's uh, a period of about two and a half months, maybe three months, where John in John two, John 7, verse 2, tells us that there is the Feast of Dedication. And then in John 10, verse 21, he tells us, I have that backwards. John 7, verse 2, is the Feast of Tabernacles. John 10, 21, the Feast of Dedication. So we can timestamp this portion of Scripture between two feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles comes in the falls fall uh, celebrations, um, and we find that there's several. It's at the end of October into November sometimes, depending on the date of the calendar by the Hebrew calendar. But we have the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, where for a seven-day period the people would camp out and uh, remember God's work with the Israelites as they came out of Egypt and were there 40 years in the wilderness. And then the Feast of Dedication, it is a feast that we learn about from the book of Esther, where God spared Israel and they celebrated Purim, or the Feast of Dedication. We know it today also as Hanukkah, and that takes place. It can be very late in November, usually in December. So we have this somewhat from October to December period uh, taking place here between these two feast celebrations of Israel. The next great feast that will be celebrated will be Passover. That takes place in the spring. And Jesus at that time will be crucified, die upon the cross. So we are in that last six months of Jesus's life as these events are taking place. In the last two weeks in John chapter 7, we've looked at Jesus' interaction with his brothers, and at that time, the scripture tells us that they did not believe in him. Also, how he related to the common people and also the religious rulers and how they were uh, coming against Jesus, and that will continue to be the case in this chapter as well as we continue John 7, beginning in verse 37. The religious rulers will come against Jesus once again. The attack will never stop until they put him on the cross. And I can say this, that the attack has never stopped. That uh, there is a bit of our culture that has always been against Jesus, against his church, and the work that God has us doing in this world. So today we are going to look at three teaching points. And the title of the message today is, If anyone thirsts, 
from John 7:37 to John 8:11. And our first point is he who believes in me, John 7:37 through 39. No man ever spoke like this man, John 7:40 through 53, and neither do I condemn you, John 8 verses 1 through 11. And so John 7, verses 37 through 39. I love this portion of scripture. We all should because Jesus here is talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. When he said, and I'll read the context, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that very last verse, verse 39, John gives us commentary about what Jesus spoke on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Feast of Tabernacles, I've already mentioned this, they're celebrating the time where the Lord took Israel through the wilderness for 40 years and provided for them. And we're looking that, at that on Wednesday evening in the book of Deuteronomy, as well as Moses is reminding the children, the parents had died in the wilderness. The children were about ready to enter into the promised land. He's reminding them of God's provision, how he provided food, how he provided water, how their clothing and shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. I know that would be tough for a lot of the ladies and even some of the guys. It's like you've been wearing that same thing for 38 years. Don't you have anything else that you can put on? It's like, look, it's still good. It looks brand new. And uh, even their feet didn't swell. I mean, the Bible goes to that specific on that. Their feet didn't even swell up walking through the wilderness. I get... You know, it doesn't say that it didn't sweat. I would have been doing that. But um, we were looking at this on Wednesday evening, and some have said the just to have a campground for Israel in the wilderness, for all the nation of Israel to camp, would somewhat take up the area of Rhode Island. Uh, it was a big campground. And, and here's something I've never thought about but um, crossing over the Red Sea in the night. They went through in one night, and then the Egyptians tried and drowned the next day as the Lord brought the water back over them. <laughs> they said, and they're, they're theorizing on the number of three and a half million people, and so two million to three and a half million, but still the thought is the same. If they were to go, you know, in a group single file or, or side by side, uh, in a long line, it would take them 38 days to get through all the people. So for them to go through in one night, that they would have to be 5,000 people abreast across for them to cross through in a night. And I've never even pondered those things before. So there were some mighty miracles and God providing food for the children of Israel every day would take two train loads of food a mile long. And then if you're going to cook the food, you have to have firewood, which would be another couple of train loads of wood to provide for them. And then if you need water, it was something like 11, and 11 million gallons of water just for them 
to have a little water to drink, not even to bathe. So that would even take more. So they celebrated this, the provision of water. It was customary, one of the customs that came out of this feast is every day the priest would pour out water on the altar and the water would run down from the altar to the stairs of the temple. While the priests are reciting Isaiah 12:3, it says, with joy you have drawn water from the wells of salvation. And it is believed that on that last day of the feast, some have theorized that while the water was pouring down the steps, that Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Now, we can't know if that was the exact timing of this because scripture is silent about exactly when. We do know it's the last day of the great feast. We do know that they had this custom of pouring out water to mimic the provision of water in the wilderness. And here Jesus cries out. It had to be a powerful cry to the people who were in need of salvation. They were thirsty for salvation, but they sadly did not realize it. And to this day, people have been attempting to quench this thirst that they have in their souls. They're trying to quench a thirst for God through human methods. Um, Methods of human origin like religion, philosophy, or science. And yet apart from Christ, these methods are broken cisterns. So we don't necessarily use the word cistern, but a well. In Israel, they would gather water during the rainy seasons and they would carve out, and there's a lot of limestone in Israel. And we've been uh, in the area of Israel where they they call it the bell caves. Uh, they didn't even know these caves existed. The military was in this open field area doing maneuvers and, and doing what military does, practicing war games and such. And one of the soldiers suddenly disappeared. He just like fell right through the ground. And they had no idea that underneath them, and we've been down inside the caves, Lily, myself, others from the church when we were there in Israel, and uh, people would have their house, and I, I don't know, they began working on a basement in their house. They were actually retrieving the lime from underneath their homes. But they began carving out underneath the house, and basically it was like a spiral staircase that kept widening and widening and widening until underneath their homes they had these huge caverns. And we're talking about ceilings that may be 100 feet high or more and maybe some 200 feet or 300 feet across. And they called them the bell caves. It was similar to a cistern in the sense that they wouldn't be that big and that deep, but they would dig out in the limestone a place where they could store water. It would keep it cool. It would store, but if there was a crack in the rock, it would also leak out. And... These were merely broken cisterns, like Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and had hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So that was the condemnation against Israel, and that's what's happening with the religious rulers. They have this religion that is no longer based on faith but on works, and 
they've created a religion of tradition where the Lord said in Jeremiah 2.13 that the two evils, they've forsaken me and they've made these man-made religions, these broken cisterns that can hold no water. And Jesus cried out, if anyone thirsts, let them come unto me. In verse 38, he said, he who believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the rivers of living water can be twofold. First, it speaks of the gift of salvation. We already read from Isaiah 12:3 that says, therefore, with joy, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. But secondly, and John tells us this in verse 39, Jesus spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. It speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Isaiah 44, 3 prophesied of this as well. For I will pour out water on him who is thirsty, floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, my blessing on your offspring. So the water, the thirsty souls, the spirits all connected here in Isaiah 44, 3 and connects perfectly with the words that Jesus cried out on the last day of that great feast in John 7, 37 and 38. So John makes commentary of this in verse 39. He says he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, but he also said at this time the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is speaking about the work of Jesus on the cross. He hasn't went to the cross yet. The Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. That would take place on the day of Pentecost. But we learn in the Word of God that there are various works of the Holy Spirit. One of the lessons that the late pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, taught us is that there's three Greek prepositions that deal with the work of the Holy Spirit. The first is para. The second is in. The Greek word spells it E-N. We spell it I-N. And the third is a P. So the para means with or nearby. And in John 14, 17, Jesus will tell his disciples, the Holy Spirit dwells with you. The Holy Spirit dwells with para he is near you. He is with you. And this really speaks about the work of the Spirit of God in an unbeliever's life. They haven't received Christ yet, but the Spirit of God is working. He's bringing them into conversation with people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's causing them to have thoughts about God, about maybe their purpose in life, about their need for salvation. He's causing them to be thirsty and searching. And the Holy Spirit can convict people of sin, but also at some point, He'll reveal to them that Jesus is the answer to their sin, that through Christ we are set free. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking of the Holy Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So a true confession of faith in Jesus Christ cannot hap happen except by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, being with, but also in a believer's life. So the second preposition, in, again, in the Greek, it's spelt E-N. 
In English, we spell it I-N. And again, we go to John 14, 17, where he said the Holy Spirit dwells with you. And then he said to his disciples that the Spirit will be in you. So prior to Jesus' death, the penalty of sin had not yet been dealt with. Therefore, the Spirit could not occupy in the sense that we understand it today. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain individuals. He'd come upon a king like David, upon the priest, upon prophets. But today, the gift of the Spirit is to all the sons and daughters of faith. He shall be in you. And I believe this speaks about the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit is with you, drawing you to receive Jesus Christ. But when you receive Christ, the Spirit dwells in you. And we find this even with the disciples in John 20, verses 19 and 22. After Jesus died, and three days later, he rose from the grave. And that night, he appeared to the disciples and the disciples have been hiding because of the fear of the Jews in John 20, 19. But Jesus in John 20, 22 came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be with you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I look at that and I believe that this was the moment of salvation. And the reason I say that prior to Jesus's death, burial and resurrection, uh, the salvation that we know of today being part of the Christian church, was not yet available. Anyone who died prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the grave, they were looking forward to the work of the Messiah. But now, Jesus had completed that work. There on the cross, he said, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. He's completed the work, and now the disciples received the Holy Spirit. And I got to tell you this, if the Lord says to me, John, and he breathes on me and says, receive the Holy Spirit, I'm going to receive it. I'm going to let it come in. I think that's what the Lord does when we receive Christ as our Savior. No longer was the Spirit merely with them, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, the Spirit now entered in them. But then to the same group of the disciples in Luke 24, 49 and Acts 1, 8, the same guys who had received the Spirit, the Spirit was in them. The third preposition is a P. Um, some would say epi. We're used to that because of epipens and stuff, right? But in the Greek, epi, E-P-I is how it's spelled. The accent is on the I. And the last uh, preposition means upon. It's a coming upon, Luke 24, 49. I send my the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So the promise of my Father upon you, a P. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. You shall be witness to, witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the coming upon speaks about this baptism of the Holy Spirit or the empowering of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And just know this, that only Jesus can quench our thirsty souls and fill us with his spirit. So that on the last day of the great feast, Jesus cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Jesus is still crying that same cry today. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink. Our problem, we try to fill or quench that thirst through other means, other methods. Our second point, we find no man ever spoke like this man, John 40 through 53, but we'll look at verses 40 through 43 to begin. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. First, we notice that the people, the common people, is what this is referring to. They were divided concerning Jesus. Now, both the words prophet and Christ have definite articles on them. So this is talking about distinction. This is the prophet. This is the Christ. Except they couldn't even agree on that. Some were saying, this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. In reality, they're one and the same. Moses said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 18:15, and also in verse 18, the Lord your God will send you, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the prophet here, this definite article, the prophet, speaking about someone like Moses, God was foretelling through Moses that there would be one who would be like Moses speaking for the children of Israel. I was thinking of someone probably about five or six years ago had made a comment to me, uh, being Jewish, he made a comment to me that we believe in Moses and you Christians believe in Jesus. And uh, that's where they stand, right? We believe in Moses. And yet Moses said, there's another one coming. If you believe in Moses, then you should be looking for the other one who is coming, the prophet like me the prophet and the children of Israel at this time, though they were a little mixed up, some saying he's the prophet, others saying he's the Christ, they were looking for a future work of God in their midst. Their misunderstanding of this whole thing is that they were expecting the Messiah of the second coming. They were looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We're talking about the Lord coming his second coming, and they did not understand the first coming. They didn't understand that it was going to be split like God has it played out through history from the time of Christ's resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his promise to come again in the clouds that they didn't understand this. Even his disciples at first did not understand these things. But they were looking for something. Now Christos is the Greek word Ho Christos, the Christ, or the Messiah, if it's in the, Christos is the Greek word, um, 
so the Hebrew would be the Messiah. And we find that both John and Jesus, he called for people to repent in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So the message of John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The message of Jesus when he began preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The people's hearts were stirred toward the coming of the Messiah. And yet according to prophecy, they knew, they knew something that King Herod didn't even get. Remember when the wise men came to him and he asked those the religious rulers and such, they got it, but he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, oh, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. The people understood this, the Messiah, he's of the seed of David, he's from the town of Bethlehem. What they did not know is that Jesus of Nazareth was from the seed of David and had been born in Bethlehem. So they got the details right, they just, at this point, hadn't connected it to Jesus, as in Luke 2, 4, it tells us that Joseph went up from Galilee to, uh, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, that which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, and that's where Jesus was born. So the people, they're divided over Jesus. That's happening to this day. Here's a survey I pulled up. It's actually from... 2015, it was the most recent survey I could find of this division. I'm sure it's worse than what we're reading about now, the five points that I'll give you now. No doubt from 2015 to now, it's only going to be worse. But this is a survey about what people think about Jesus in the United States. So Americans and their view about Jesus. Number one, the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. Well, that's good. People believe that there is an historic Jesus. Number two, younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus was God. That's not good. So now they will admit, yeah, he was a real person, but he was not God. Number three, Americans are divided whether Jesus was sinless. Now this is a big issue because if Jesus had sin, then he would not be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. But Americans are divided. They want a Jesus that's just like them. But I need a Savior who's far superior, far above anything or anyone, or any part of what I am able to be. He's Savior because he's Savior, not because he's just like me. I don't need a buddy, I need a Savior. Number four, most Americans say that they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Here we are several years removed from this survey, and I would say that this is becoming less and less, and we've I looked at this before in times past that there are less people believing in Jesus in the United States than ever before, and it pretty much plays out in our society. If people had real faith in Jesus Christ, our nation would look a lot different than it does right now. And number five, people are conflicted between Jesus 
and good deeds as the way to heaven. I found this to be true for years that people, for the most part, they don't have a good understanding of the Bible, but in their minds, they think that if I'm going to ever make it to heaven, it's going to be because I'm a good person, because I do good things. And yet what they don't understand is that the Bible teaches us that there are none good, none who are righteous, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So the five things, the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. Younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. Most Americans say they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. People are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as a way to heaven. And truly, there continues to be this division among the people because of Jesus. So as we continue on, picking up in verses 44 through 46, now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. So officers were detached Go arrest Jesus. There may have been some religious rulers on hand pointing at the cops saying, go get him. Put him in handcuffs. Take him away. Call the paddy. Would they have a paddy wagon? I don't know. But it was time to get rid of this guy. But they came to arrest Jesus and discovered that they had been themselves arrested by the words of Jesus. No man has ever spoke like this man before. Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and so it was, when he had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The people were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. And I would have to think that would be the case. That there's no man has ever spoken like this man before. No one could compare to Jesus, the Son of God, bringing forth the Word of God to the people, both believers and unbelievers. And so it was, verses 47 through 49, the Pharisees answered and said, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know law is accursed. So they're saying to the police officers, Are you guys also un uneducated? Like the common people? We have our PhDs. We have our master degrees, our doctorates. We know what we're talking about. Don't listen to the common folk. They have no idea. They were saying, we know better. And they even asked, have you seen any of us believe in him? They thought, we know better. Jesus actually knew. He said of the Pharisees, the religious rulers, the scribes, in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, hypocrites, well did Isaiah say about you, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching 
as doctrines the commandments of men. They didn't know better. They were given the very word of God and they have turned it into a, a practice, a study of tradition, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In Matthew 15, 14, Jesus said of them, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind and the blind lead the blind. Both will fall into the ditch. So they didn't know better. But the thing that they said, it's interesting because we do have one of the religious rulers, Nicodemus, who here is presented to us. They said, have any, have you found that any of us have believed in him? But here we find Nicodemus, verses 50 through 53. One who came to Jesus by night, being of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. So Nicodemus challenged their assumptions. Do we condemn someone without actually hearing from him? And all they did was condemn him. Are you like the common people? Come on, Nick. And by the way, this is the first Nick at night because we know that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3 and he had said to Jesus, no man can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus saw things differently than his counterparts. His heart was open toward God and the things of God, and he was willing, I believe he was willing to search and see. They said, search and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee, and all they had to do is look in the word of God and discover that actually, yeah, there was a prophet from Galilee. His name was Jonah. According to 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah grew up in Gath-Hefer. It was a town about five miles away from Nazareth. So the answer is yes. They challenged him to search and look, and perhaps Nicodemus did search. He did look and say, well, if they're wrong on this, then maybe they're wrong about Jesus. Did Nicodemus take their advice to search and look? I believe he did. We do find the next time he's mentioned that he's alongside Joseph of Arimathea when they are burying the body of Jesus. So someone, when the disciples were hiding behind locked doors, Nicodemus stepped out from behind the doors of tradition and let everybody know that he was a follower of Jesus. John 5:39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me. And those who thirst will search and see that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So we get into John 8, and we meet a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They're challenging Jesus. They want to have something by which they can condemn Jesus. The very end of John 7, 53, it says everybody went into their own house. But John 8, 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And so 
everybody, the feast is over. Everybody went home. Jesus didn't go home. He went to the Mount of Olives. We never read, it's kind of interesting, but never do we read in the Gospels of Jesus ever sleeping or spending the night in the city of Jerusalem proper. So the Mount of Olives is across from the walls of the old city, and it's like that to this day. The walls of the Temple Mount are still there. It's east of Temple Mount, but it is across. It's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's where Jesus went to pray on the night that he was crucified. But we never read of him um, sleeping within the city, but he would have went out the east gate. Today, that eastern gate has been sealed off. It's been closed uh, over a thousand years ago by the Muslims because they know scripture and they're trying to keep Jesus from coming back a second time. So this is one of the scriptures that talk about Jesus Entering kings, the prince entering in Ezekiel 46:12. Now when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering, a voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces the east shall be open for him. And he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offering as he did on the Sabbath day. He shall go out, and after he goes out, that gate will be shut. And so today that gate has been sealed um, Muslims are trying to prevent Jesus from entering the eastern gate. They not only seal the gate, they put a, a graveyard in front of the gate. So from the Mount of Olives, you have uh, the foundation of Temple Mount, the eastern gate sealed up, and it's going to the Kidron Valley. So it's, uh, it's a mountain, and it's going down the valley, and planted on the hill of that valley is a... Muslim graveyard because they theorize that if the sealed up gate can't stop Jesus, then walking through a graveyard will defile him. So we'll just plant a graveyard there. On the other side, on the uh, Mount of Olives side, there's a Jewish graveyard. So you have two, two opposing religions facing each other in their death, facing each other. Uh, the interesting thing about all the Jews is that they bury them with their feet down, that when the Messiah does come back up, they just have to pop right up. They're facing the temple. So traditions, right? Traditions can be silly. That seems like a silly one. But it does seem like a battleground played out even after death there. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, verses 2 through 6, Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them, verse two. So though tested by the religious rulers, the common people came and heard Jesus gladly. He was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, the people were teaching to are seeking to destroy him, but they couldn't do anything according to Luke's, Luke 19. 47 through 48, because the people were very attentive to him. They were worried about a riot. What would the people do? They liked Jesus. He's a very popular teacher. He teaches like no one has ever taught before. In verses 3 through 6, so the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, the very act and Moses in the law commanded us that she or such should be stoned. 
But what do you say? And they said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. He wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. So the law, uh, Ten Commandments, Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Leviticus 20.10. Now, here's the technicality, the technicality of the law that they were not even um, obeying at this point. The woman was caught in the very act of adultery. How many people did they bring to Jesus that they were accusing? Just one. You do not commit adultery alone. It takes two to tango, as the old adage goes. Levi or Leviticus 20.10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer, the man, the adulteress, the woman, shall surely be put to death. That's the letter of the law. So if they wanted to be obedient to the letter of the law, they should have had two people there present. We caught this couple in the act of adultery. The law says they should be stoned. What do you say? But Jesus, as if he didn't even hear them, began writing on the ground. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen the finger of God writing. The Ten Commandments and the two tablets of stone were written by the finger of God. An accusation came against Belshazzar, uh, the son of Belshazzar, I should say, the son of great grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, when the finger came, a finger of as a man's hand appeared on the wall and wrote those words, meaning, meaning, tekel yufarsin, in Dan, Daniel 5, and the translation of that, as Daniel said, each word having the meaning that you're. God has numbered your kingdom and it is finished. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting in Persian. Perez, your kingdom has been divided, given to the Medes and the Persians. So it's not the first time that we find the finger of God bringing accusation or writing in Scripture. It happened in the Old Testament. We don't know what Jesus was writing when he stooped down to write on the ground, but it really bugged them. They said to him, verses 7 through 9, they continued asking him. So they weren't going to let it go. Jesus just ignored them at first. They wouldn't let it go. They continued asking, so he rose up. And his answer to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. Those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. We don't know what Jesus wrote. There's a lot of theories, and there's just simply theories. Some believe that maybe the first time he knelt down, he wrote out the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt make no graven image. Thou shalt not use the name of God in vain. And as the list goes on, you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And, and those are the God side of the Ten Commandments of how man is to relate to God. And then the other six commandments deal with 
uh, man's relationship with each other. Honor your father and mother that your days will be long. Um, I can't remember the exact order, but do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet, and uh, it goes on through the list. Thou shalt not steal, I think, was number six. But whether he wrote these down or not, so one of the theories is that he wrote out the Ten Commandments, and then he stooped down a second time, and he began to write names next to the sins that the people there had committed. They had other gods, and they put John's name next to it or someone else's name there. It's interesting that John specifically said from the oldest to the last, from the oldest to the youngest, hey, the longer we live in this life, the more baggage we have. And it's a lot quicker to convict someone of their sins if they're really open and honest about their sins. And they went out in order from oldest to youngest, each being convicted and walking away. And all that was left was Jesus and the woman. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, anyone thirst, come to me and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, the fountain of living water. And here in Jeremiah 17, 13, it not only spoke, speaks about names being written in the earth, but specifically they had forsaken the Lord, who is the fountain of living water. That was the condition of the heart, hearts of these religious rulers. But Jesus, verses 10 and 11, closing us out, when he has raised himself up, saw no one but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those who have accused you? Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, a lot of people like to pick up on the neither do I condemn you. And they forget about the second half of that. Don't go and sin no more. But one thing that really stands out to me, present in that crowd on that day was one who was without sin. So the very words of Jesus, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Jesus could have been the one to cast the first stone. But he said, neither do I condemn you. He chose to not condemn and he challenged her to go and sin no more. John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In John 5.14, Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. So two things out of this, that Jesus at that time did not come in judgment. He came to save, and he did not condemn. He challenged her to go and sin no more, but that's not the only time. This was a man that at the pool of Bethesda was unable to walk. The Lord healed him, and there was a big event around it. It was on the Sabbath day. They went after Jesus because of this. And at the end of the day, Jesus found the man once again and said, See, you've been made well. Go and sin no more. There's that challenge. 
by Jesus. But in Jesus, for Romans 8, 1, it says, There is thou therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is no condemnation to those who drink from the wells of salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go ahead and stand together. If anyone thirsts, and know this, only Jesus can quench the spiritual thirst of our souls. Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the book of the Bible, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus has promised the living water that you will never thirst again. And that new life, that living water is available through a confession, a prayer way to pray and cry out to Jesus that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And looking to Jesus, not looking to cisterns or wells that you have dug for yourself, man-made philosophy or religion or science, but looking to the only one who can save, the only one who can quench the thirst of our souls, Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, for your word that you have given us this day. And I pray, Lord, if we are thirsty in two different ways. Lord, first is that need of salvation. First and foremost, Lord, through faith in the work that you did, your work on the cross, your death, your burial, your resurrection from the grave, Lord, you have made available salvation to all who look to you in life-saving faith. Lord, to quench that thirst in us in life-saving faith. We pray, Lord, if there is one that doesn't know you as Savior, that today their hearts would turn toward you and that they would be saved. But here in John 7, 37 and 38, it speaks specifically about the Holy Spirit that would be poured out upon the church. And so today, Lord, as your church, maybe we are thirsty thirsting for the work of your spirit in our lives. And we've been lacking something. We know, Lord, something is missing. We know, Lord, that um, we have been striving physically, but there's a needed spiritual work that you need to do. Your spirit has been with us. We know this because your spirit has entered into us. We've been saved. But maybe, Lord, your spirit has not come upon us. And there's a further work of the Spirit that you desire to do in the hearts of believers today. If anyone thirsts, Lord Jesus, you said, let them come unto me and drink. And out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water. Lord, we need such rivers of living water flowing forth from our lives this day. And I pray, Lord, that we look to you to quench that thirst a thirst that only you can satisfy, that only you can quench. May we look to you this day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you are standing.